The city's aviation chief says Chicago's economic powerhouse, O'Hare, is on its way back. And in three Chicago suburbs, there are almost no homes left to buy. And the nearly non-existent inventory means higher prices and stiff competition. At the present state, in three towns, there is half a month's inventory on the market. Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin joins me to talk about that and other news from the local housing market. What's considered a healthy market is four to six months of inventory on the market. We have that almost nowhere. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, July 8th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Gist Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news this week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. How's it going? Morning, Amy. It's going great. How are you? I'm well, thank you. You have such a busy beat, and you have all year, but I was very interested. The moment I saw this story, I was like, I cannot wait to talk to Dennis about this one, and that is in three towns in the Chicago suburbs, there are basically zero houses to buy. How is that possible? Zero. It's possible because this is really sort of a mathematical thing. Inventory is measured as uh, the number of houses on the market will fuel how many months of sales at the current pace. So while I'm going to give some tight inventory figures, new houses are coming on the market and going off the market all the time. But at the present state in three towns, there is half a month's inventory on the market which is to say there are enough homes on the market to last two weeks of sales. Of course, there will be more that come on, but it's really tight. Before I name them, I should say half a month's sales is compared to what's considered a healthy market is four to six months of inventory on the market. We have that almost nowhere in the city or the suburbs. Uh, I also want to say I don't have these figures for individual city neighborhoods. I have it for the city overall. It's about 2.9 months of inventory. So where is their inventory of two weeks or 0.5 months? Three towns, Tinley Park, Romeoville, and Island Lake. These are primarily places that are relatively affordable, middle-class housing, And that is the part of the market that's been happening the most because uh, it's not only true that because of the pandemic, I want to trade up uh, to more space. I may also be trading out from the city to farther away. But it's also true that low interest rates are making it possible for me to make that trade, are really sweetening that deal. And I'm more affected by low interest rates if I'm buying in the $200,000, $300,000 range, which is what people are doing in Tinley Park, Romeoville, and in an island lake than if I'm paying $5 million for a house. Sure. And had you seen this coming or is this suddenly kind of just upon us, this data? I don't think I have seen 0.5 pretty much at any time in the years that these figures have been made available. It's always, uh, it's been posted by the Chicago Association of Realtors and 
Midwest real estate data in this form for about the past six years. The numbers go back to about 2007. I don't think I've ever seen it anywhere get this tight. The thing is, even before this housing boom that, that kicked in in 2020, we were reporting on low inventory. Not only I in Chicago, but reporters all over the country were talking about low inventory and it just keeps getting lower and lower. And 0.5, I mean, next month will I be reporting there's zero months inventory in some towns? Mathematically, there is in a couple of places where there are no sales and nothing on the market, some very small population suburbs, but I didn't count those because that's really sort of a false number. But it's super duper tight in uh, Tinley Park, Romeoville, and Island Lake. Maybe I'll re be reporting that it's even tighter uh, in the next month or two. That's so interesting. You've already answered the next question I was going to ask you is, have you seen this happen before? But apparently not. I don't remember any time when it's been like that. I mean, I've done stories, oh my gosh, inventory is so tight, it's at two months. Oh my gosh, inventory is so tight, it's at a month and a half. Now we're reporting 0.5 months. And so I assume you talked to some realtors that are working in those areas. What did they have yeah. to say? Those who have time to answer the phone because sure. the market is so busy in those times. Yeah, and they say, well, a couple of things happen. First of all, uh, one of the reasons inventory is so tight is that our prices have been rising so quickly that there are people who say, I can't go on the market because I can't afford the step from what I'm in to whatever would be bigger. Uh, and again, that would be especially true if I'm in that $200,000, $300,000 range. I may not have the household assets that make it possible to take a big step up. Um, can't afford to have two mortgages at once if for some reason my uh, current home doesn't sell quickly and I've already bought my next I really am not in a position to pay for both. Again, not something that's true. If you have a lot of household wealth, you may hold your house in Lincoln Park and wait to sell it at another time when you've moved to Lake Forest and carry both mortgages. Uh, and there are also people who just say, I can't deal with this. This market is nuts. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I could see that. I could absolutely see people just going, I don't know that I want any part of this. This is kind of a lot all at once. You know, I hear that for all these different kinds of um, pandemic era stories we've been doing the last several months. I hear that in almost every set of interviews. You might remember the one where um, I was writing about leasebacks. Sellers don't have the next house yet. They sell it with the uh, stipulation that they're going to rent it back for 30, 60 days. There were people at that time who were saying, they didn't want to put the house on the market because they just didn't want to deal with the stress. You know, you've got the other stresses of just regular life, the pandemic era, and then you're going to jump into this boiling market. Well, I think a lot of people say, no, my mental health is more important. Absolutely fair. That's completely fair because moving is a lot of drama. It's a it lot is. of drama. And do you want the drama of, you know, 10 offers come in on my house within 48 hours of my listing it? And that's not a made up. I mean, that's happening left and right, not only in Tinley and Romeoville and, and Island Lake. You've got 10 offers, you've got to decide, and you're also looking for your next house. I think there are a lot of people just saying, nope. Yeah, hard pass. <laughs> I'll just yeah. wait this one out indeed. Well, I look forward to talking about that again to see what the inventory is like in the next few weeks or the next month and, and how that goes, because that's fascinating. I mean, 0.5 is, that's something. It is. And you know, it's also worth noting, those yeah. are the ones I singled out because it's lowest, but there were, I, I think there were three dozen suburbs 
where inventory is between 0.5 months and one month. So, I mean, essentially they're as low as in these three yeah. uh, towns. It's it's just unbelievably tight. Most of those were sort of south, south, southwest, and northwest uh, suburbs, and and generally the same sort of middle class housing. We're going to revisit that topic again for sure. Okay, um, let us move to. We've got so many houses to talk about the um, the International College of Surgeons. There was some questions about that property. It's kind of two buildings together, but it sold, and it was kind of. We were just talking about it last week, but you have more on that. Tell me. To me, the really good news here is this mansion, one of only seven left on Lakeshore Drive from the sort of golden age of Lakeshore Drive mansions, uh, is going back to residential after nearly 70 years. It finally sold at $4.25 million late last week. It sold for one quarter of what the Surgeons Association was originally asking for it. The buyer actually contacted me before the sale closed to say, I've got some details for you for when it publishes. And um, what he told me is they don't yet have a budget for restoration. It will clearly be in the multiple millions. They don't yet have an architect and they don't have a specific plan, but they do know they don't expect to add anything. There's space. I think we talked about this last week. There's the mansion and there's a big sort of driveway around the mansion and a coach house, and they don't expect to build in between or up above. So as far as we know, at least as of the present, the historical mansion and coach house will remain as they are. There's lots of beautiful ornamental plaster, really amazing paneling, beautiful heavy stone stairs that curl up from one floor to the other. Most of it, all of that will be retained according to the people who bought it. But they also, I mean, they have a lot of restoration to do. The bathrooms have only toilets, no bathing facilities because it's been offices for so long. There's essentially no kitchen and you're not going to live in a $4.2 million mansion on Lakeshore Drive and only order food in, you know, so they've got to put in a really grand kitchen on the scale of this house. They will have to redo the bathrooms, uh, but it's going to be residential again. The people who bought it live just a few blocks away on Astor Street and they did some restoration of a mansion there. They're excited about this restoration, which is saying a lot because it's going to be a huge job. So let's check in with them after they're done and see if they're still excited. Um, but it's, it's you know, it's good news that it's going back to residential use. Down the line, if the surgeons sell off the museum, maybe that goes residential. And then you've got the Polish consulate on the right. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a reporter. I'm objective. I'm not in favor of any particular outcome, but I think it is good news for fans of historical Lakeshore Drive that this will be residential again. Speaking of Lakeshore Drive, there's a penthouse that has sold for $11.25 million. That's the year's second highest home price, correct? It is. That would be about a, a mile south of where we were talking. The, the Surgeon's Mansion is at 1516. This is at 840 Lakeshore Drive. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with it because it's got that huge turret right there. It's just, it's near the Mies buildings. Um, it's a Lucien Lagrange building and the uh, penthouse came on the market a couple of years ago at 13 million. It sold last week for 11.25. That's the second highest price of the year. It's also the highest price paid for a downtown condo since 2019. So this 
revival of co the condo market downtown that you and I have been talking about as the reopening happens, this would be the biggest bet anybody has placed on that. We had talked about Khalil Mack buying down there a couple of months ago at a, about two thirds this price. Now somebody has said, I believe in downtown Chicago. I believe in the downtown Chicago market, uh, condo market at the point of spending 11.25 million. So once again, you know, people who have been concerned about what's gonna go on with downtown living in Chicago, here's a sign that it might be reviving in a nice, healthy way. I mean, look at that view from that balcony. That's hard to say no to that view. Yeah, you know, so that's the view from the South. There's also a view over the lake. It just happened that the picture didn't work because of our format, but you're up there on the 26th floor with this kind of view of the skyline and then a view out over the lake, out over Lakeshore Drive and Oak Street Beach and Navy Pier and the lake. Uh, this is a pretty fantastic place and, and um, big inside as well. I think it's 8,000 square feet inside. And one of the things about that um, Lucien Lagrange design with that big turret, I remember I was in when the building was going up in 2006, 2007, the turret was designed to be your dining room so that you would put your dining table in this round space, really looking right out over the lake. Uh, I don't think in this one, in fact, I don't remember whether there even was a photo of the turret space in this one. I haven't been inside this unit. Sellers wouldn't talk to me. Real estate agents, uh, sellers couldn't be reached. They've moved to a ranch in Montana. The real estate agents for the buyer and the seller didn't talk to me. And I don't think there was a picture of the turret, but I don't believe they used it as a dining room. But just the idea that you'd sit, you know, you and your guests would be sitting essentially extended out over the lake with glass all around you. That was the original idea when these were being sold. I'm sure that's lovely. If someone wants to, someone lives there, wants to send us, send us a picture, we'll look at it. We'll talk about it. It'll be all good. Picture? Right. Oh, we want to come. We want or, to come. Or that. If you would like to have a dinner party, invite us over. We are great guests. We are so fun. Oh, totally. Look at us today. <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful unit. You see all this beautiful woodwork in there, yeah. and, but it, yet it still looks very light and airy. The same kind of quality as when a place is painted entirely white. That yeah. light wood really gives it a very beautiful and airy kind of feel. Yeah, none of that sort of heavy cherry from the early 2000s where you look at it and think, well, I guess I have to get rid of this. Um, I think this has, a, as you say, a nice light airy look that, uh, you know, when you buy at $11 million, you may have a designer and a look that you want, or maybe this is something that you can move right in. Definitely. Well, very nice. All right. Let's now talk about a, uh, a Lincoln Park home. There's a person of note attached to this house. Tell me about this. I was interested because I had no idea that uh, the ambassador to Thailand was a Chicagoan. Um, I don't know that he he and his family lived in this house at the time he was ambassador. He was appointed, appointed ambassador to Thailand by Donald Trump in early 2020, uh, served until the first day of the Biden administration. Michael Desam, uh, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. I think it's Desam, but it might be Desamber. In his remarks, accepting the ambassadorship, he said he grew up on the south side of Chicago, but this was uh, for sale before he became the ambassador. This has been for sale since 2018, and it sold for just a little bit over two million, like two million and fifty. You, you can tell there's like interesting, um, interesting updates to it. And I think it's very, it's artful. It's artfully done when people are able to put in really modern updates, but still kind of maintain the bones. So you can tell it's an older structure. And I feel like they've kind of accomplished this, especially with this kitchen. 
I, yeah, and I think in that part of Cleveland, you don't have much choice. Well, first of all, it's a, it's an attached building, so you can't you can't change the facade without changing everybody else's. But you're in an area where you're not going to be taking things down and building new. But you certainly, you know, inside can do a renew. Yeah, for sure. All right. Speaking of houses, let's go to another house. This one is a mid-century home that just sold. This is in uh, Itasca. Tell me about this place. Yeah, so this is interesting because it's designed to look like mid-century Palm Springs, but it's brand new. When I walked through it about a week before it was sold, some of the details were still being put in. This is a man who, this is a builder who did previously the house right next door, which we covered last year when it sold. Um, and and he said he was going to go farther. He's he's borrowing that mid-century look. The one next door had an upside down V-shaped roof. This one obviously has a right side up V-shaped roof or a butterfly roof. So you've got these clear story windows all around and inside the rooms, those windows, of course, bring in a lot of light on all sides. But you've got this swoopy look that he picked up from walking around Palm Springs. He's not... Uh, aping houses he sees in Palm Springs, but looking at the details he likes and sort of trying to bring them here. And he's building in Itasca. It's a very interesting place because this subdivision was built in the 50s and 60s. So it's ranch houses. They're not as zippy as this, but they're mid-century houses. And then he's put in two, about to be three new ones that in a sense, they sort of elevate the ones that are already there. If you were to walk through now, you might think, oh, these were all built at the same time. And some of them were just a little more aggressive design wise. Uh, and this would be the most aggressive so far. Although the next one, which he showed me designs of will be even more so because in this case, you see the garage. So you've got that great butterfly roof, but then there's a garage sort of jacked off the side, had to do with the shape of the lot. The shape of the next lot means that you'll just see a big butterfly roof. You won't see a garage. And I really think that people will wander through that neighborhood in Itasca and, and not have any idea that these houses were built at a different time, just think they, as the uh, older houses in the neighborhood, just think that they were built, you know, some people built them with more of a design flourish all around the same time. Nice walnut cabinets inside. One of the things it does, uh, one of the ways it is not a mid-century house is that it's really wide open in the living space. The mid-century houses often had sort of a great room style, but they would still have dining room and, and separate areas. This in the main living area is one big great room. You can see here. And look what those clear story windows do. I mean, you're going to get so much daylight. Um, in the bedrooms, I think in a couple of the bedrooms, you, uh, you may, you only have a few lower windows, you might cover those, but then leave the clear stories uncovered and be able to see the sky, the, the stars at night. I, I really love the, the effect that that butterfly roof has on the house, that all that light coming in, all that extra light. Yeah. It's really beautiful, really interesting. But to look at this house from the outside, you wouldn't necessarily know this is a brand new construction. No. And, and if you, you know, if, if the buyers who declined to talk to me, um, were, let's say they're fans of mid-century and they get, let's say, uh, you know, some zippy chairs and, and some great colors and some cool pots, or they do what he envisioned, the house's three sides in, in the back, and he envisioned a kidney-shaped pool right out of the 50s in that courtyard. If they were to do some of these things, they could push it farther and farther back toward the mid-century look. 
Um, I don't I don't know that that's what they'll do because they wouldn't talk to me. This is a great room. This is the family room. You can't tell from the photos. I wish you could. The wood is beautifully bookmatched. The grains are bookmatched all the way around the room. So it's as if the lines of the wood sort of undulate all the way around the room. And then the fireplace has this blue tile mantle. I mean, you had better get some great mid-century furniture in that room and some prints and sculptures that are all out of that period, or I'm going to come and get you. <laughs> you don't want Dennis Radkin showing up at your door to gripe at you about your furniture choices. The mid-century style police. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the, if you look at, like, looking at these pictures, it's just begging for these, like, cool furniture with bold uh -huh. color choices. I mean, I... I'm sure that's what they'll do, but we'll see. Maybe they'll yeah, call you and invite you over. There's some bright aqua sculptures. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if this podcast thing doesn't work out, we can always go into interior design, Dennis. We can. That's who wouldn't hire us to decorate their house? Yeah. So, you know, the one conundrum is some of the coolest stuff would be those big clunky ashtrays, those big ceramic right. ashtrays. But as a committed non-smoker, I don't think I could put those in a client's house. Same. Yes, indeed. Well. <laughs> Perhaps our interior design dreams will have to wait for now. <laughs> we'll have to stick to journalism. That's right. We will. Ah, well, we'll stick around. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead? Uh, well, actually, sort of a bookend to one of the stories we just discussed. I'm looking at the question of, you know, there has been, since reopening, there has been a lot of violence downtown. Yeah. there, And some of it has actually been in and near Streeterville. There was a shooting in the 1100 block of Lakeshore Drive and um, there have been some other things that have happened. Uh, th there was a crowd of teenagers downtown on the 4th of July. The question is, you know, there's this sort of percolating recovery in the condo market. A lot of that has to do with perception. Will the perception change or sour or slow as a result of this crime? And will the crime and violence and uh, crime and perceived violence in some cases um, and will that slow the recovery of the condo market? Interesting. Well, I'll look forward to talking about that with you next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Grubhub has plans for robotic food delivery on college campuses. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. I'm Crane's reporter, A.D. Quigg, and you're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Fresh off of O'Hare's busiest weekend in more than a year and a half, Chicago Aviation Commissioner Jamie Ree told Crane's political columnist Greg Hines that she's optimistic the airport could return to pre-COVID passenger levels as soon as late next year. In an interview after a tour of recent and ongoing O'Hare improvements, Ree told him the airport handled more than one million passengers over the July 4th weekend, and that's the most since the New Year's holiday period at the beginning of 2020. She also talked with him about the expected opening of the last of O'Hare's new runways this fall, gave some figures on how O'Hare's ability to handle more planes has been changed by the giant runway project, and said the first batch of new gates at the end of Terminal 5 should be open in a little more than a year. She also said passenger numbers continue to rise as COVID recedes and the number of those who are vaccinated continues to go up. 
The return to normal, at least normal passenger levels, won't be complete this year. Reese said most of the experts say it will be late 2022, maybe early 2023, pending developments related to COVID-19. Quarterly financials due this month from Chicago's giants of packaged food will give the first look at how the industry is faring at this stage of the pandemic. Sales surged at Kraft Heinz, Mondelez and ConAgra as restaurants remained closed and travel restrictions and public safety mitigation orders had consumers eating more meals at home. People stocked up on comfort food and nostalgic brands from childhood like Oreos and Kraft Mac and Cheese. Kraft Heinz sales rose 4.8% last year after sinking 4.9% in 2019. Revenue was up 2.8% at Mondelez after four flat years and ConAgra's sales for the third 39 weeks ended February 28th, increased 8.7% over the year earlier period as shoppers rediscovered frozen foods. But as COVID restrictions eased in many U.S. cities in the second quarter and as vaccination rates went up and case counts went down, more people went out again and started spending on restaurants and travel. And now that some workers are heading back to offices for in-person work and as children are set to return to school in the fall for in-person learning, Eating habits are again on the verge of a shift. Q2 financial results will be an early test of whether that growth was more than just a fleeting side effect of people staying home. Going back to pre-pandemic consumer preferences and behaviors could also bring back the slower sales growth that impacted the sector for years pre-COVID. But a recent report from Accenture found that 95% of people expect at least one change that they made during the pandemic to be permanent. Crane's Ali Marathi has more. Kraft Heinz, ConAgra, and Mondelez must zero in on consumers' wants and deliver the right products, online and on retailers' shelves. These companies gain new customers during the pandemic, many of whom are younger, like Generation Z and Millennials, and drive trends. Experts say that the companies can use data they've gained from their new customers to figure out where eating habits are heading. All of the companies have started to head in the directions they think the trends are going to go. Mondelez, for example, does not plan to bring back all the offerings it cut during the pandemic when it was streamlining production and simplifying shelf complexity. They say that they are using data to track consumer behavior and snacking trends, and the company expects people to continue working from home frequently, relying on e-commerce and focusing on their well-being. Kraft Heinz is in a similar boat. It has cut about 20% of its products on shelves. And CEO Miguel Patricio said during an April earnings call that many of the younger, more diverse families are increasing consumption of Kraft Heinz brands throughout the day, be that macaroni and cheese or Oscar Mayer hot dogs. About 14 months after the Willis Tower got hit with an estimated $110 million in damages from a massive flood, the Skyscrapers Insurance Company is suing to force the city and local sewer district to cover some of the costs. A lawsuit filed by Travelers Property Casualty Company of America claims that the city and the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago are responsible for the flooding at the building during the storms in May of 2020 that saw more than eight inches of rain fall on the city overwhelming sewers. The Chicago River overflowed its banks on May 17th and the Reclamation District opened up the locks near Navy Pier, allowing flood water to flow into Lake Michigan. But according to travelers, the district was slow to respond. The complaint says that certain floodgates were not opened or were only partially opened, which allowed water levels in the river to rise well above flood stage and overwhelm the sewer system, causing it to fail. Crane's Albie Galoon has more about the lawsuit. 
This case goes back to May of 2020, when some major storms moved through the Chicago area, dumping about eight inches of rain on the city, overwhelming the city's sewer system and causing flood damage around downtown, including at the Willis Tower, which suffered about $110 million in flood damage. So now the building's insurance company, Travelers, is suing the city and the Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago, alleging that they should be responsible for some of those costs. And the suit seeks more than $14 million in damages. Grubhub is turning to Russia's leading internet company to field a fleet of robots to make sure hungry college students can get food quickly, regardless of the weather. Yandex NV's self-driving unit will deploy suitcase-sized robots that have been in use in Russia since last year. That's all part of Grubhub's campus delivery program, which will cover over 250 colleges around the U.S., the company said in a statement. The robots, which will start working at some campuses during the fall semester, will mark Grubhub's first effort using autonomous vehicles. Neuro, which operates a fleet of self-driving pods, started delivering pizza for Domino's in Houston this April, while California-based KiwiBot introduced a model this year that can bring food inside. Chicago-based Grubhub has lost more than 30% of market share of food delivery in the U.S. since 2018. That according to Bloomberg's second measure. And robots present an opportunity to access areas that are car-free or that have very strict visitor policies, allowing it to better compete with DoorDash in key markets as students return to campus. For Yandex, the deal allows it to cash in on technology that it's developing for Russia's biggest ride-hailing service before autonomous taxis become a mainstream thing. And that's Crane's Daily just for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to our guest today, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your on-demand audio. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening and I'll meet you right back here next time.